Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul began this letter to the Corinthian church with a very, very strong appeal for them to recognize that their divisive, quarreling behavior indicated that they really did have some serious problems. He reminded them that Christ sent him to them in order to preach the gospel, not to speak to them with words of eloquent worldly wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power, which he said in chapter 1, verse 17. In other words, Paul knew that catering to their ongoing infatuation with what the world valued as important would only keep them from knowing the Lord and growing in their relationships with him. Their church was really in danger of becoming not a church. And then in the next verse, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul writes, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The point that he's making is that their behavior indicates they really are not applying the gospel to their day-to-day lives. What are they doing? They're living like the unbelievers around them, like the people they used to be before they came to Christ. The word of the cross has literally become folly to them, and they are living like those who are perishing. For the next 13 and a half chapters, Paul deals with the very long list of their problems always trying to bring them back to the fundamental changes that God wrought in them when they received Christ, trusting Him for their salvation. There's one more huge obstacle in the Corinthians' thinking that Paul must overcome. And it's first mentioned in verse 4 of our chapter today. If they're going to be able to function as the body of Christ once again, instead of isolating this obstacle and then giving them a list of do's or don'ts, Paul begins chapter 15 with another reminder of the only thing a Christian needs to stand on, be saved by, and hold fast to if they truly want to live in new life. In Christ. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11? I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Yes, the gospel is defined in our passage today. And we see a list of early witnesses to Christ's resurrection in verses 1 through 11. The gospel is not something that you hear once and then put it on a shelf forever afterward. Many of us in this room can testify that that's what we did, and how beautiful it was to finally discover, oh, I need to apply this that I believe to my day-to-day life. This is not like a book you read and then check it off as read, it's finished, and move on. The Corinthians knew and believed the gospel, but they seemed to relegate it to the past tense, thinking that knowing its truth was necessary for salvation, but then they could go on and do other stuff. Somehow they'd missed the part that said every part of the gospel needed to be learned over and over as they applied more of it to every area of their lives for the rest of their lives. In verses 1 and 2, we read, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now notice here that being saved is in the present tense which indicates that God's saving work is both effective and progressive. If they hold fast to the gospel, means that they should be living in accordance with its teaching. In other words, if they're only hearers but not doers of the word, they have believed in vain. Why? Because genuine faith in the gospel demonstrates 
its genuineness in the application of the gospel to their lives. There's a word for that. It's called perseverance. The gospel perseveres. It holds fast. A very simple definition of the gospel we could say is something like this. The message that recounts what Jesus had to do to save sinners. Then we can elaborate the parts. But that is a great way to see the big picture. In verses 3 into the first part of verse 4, we read, For I delivered to you, notice this, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared dot, dot, dot. We'll get there. How important does Paul say the gospel is? It's of first importance, primary importance, the most important thing of all. The two main foundational elements of the gospel, I know everybody thinks there are really three. Yes, there are, but listen closely because this will help. Really, two, that, that Christ died and was raised. Christ's death was verified by what? Being buried. And his resurrection was verified by these appearances recorded here in verses 5 through 10. Notice that the two main foundational elements of this most important gospel, are both said to be in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, Christ's gospel work was promised and recorded in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus' death for sins was planned by God beforehand, and though not crystal clear in the Old Testament, it's amazing how much of it can be seen. For example... If we look in Isaiah 53, which is probably one of the best-known passages, the first 12 verses, let me read that for you. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And as they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death. And was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. There are many other places in the Old Testament that give bits and pieces of this pretty good whole picture here in this portion. But it was clouded. Many did see it, rested their hope in its promise, understood what the sacrifices were really supposed to picture. We need to recognize that as we look at what Paul is writing to these Corinthians. Now we need to understand what that huge obstacle was that Paul was trying to help the Greek Corinthians overcome. What was it? Why did he write this chapter where he did and say what he did? The Greek understanding of death and eternity is pictured here in contrast with the doctrine of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This was huge because as we've seen, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is one of the foundational elements of the gospel that Christ died and was raised. Most pagan Greeks believed that resurrection was only spiritual and that the dead would not be raised bodily. Well, what does that mean? In other words, people would exist throughout eternity as disembodied spirits, eternal souls. Death was not seen as a consequence of Adam's act of rebellion against God. That's the point. And a universal curse which God pronounced upon the entire human race. They would just die and be a disembodied spirit. My question is, what has changed 
The majority of Americans believe this is what will happen. We go to a better place. We don't regard bodily resurrection as important. Thus, being buried takes on a different meaning. This is really, really huge to understand. In the next paragraph of this chapter, in verse 12, Paul asks a question, which we'll get to, Lord willing, next week. As he goes on in this chapter, and again, we didn't plan this, but Easter is going to come right in the middle of this chapter on resurrection. Writes this in verse 12. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. Obviously, they had this issue, and Paul is trying to overcome it by showing that the whole gospel depends on the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was acceptable to God, and he died and then defeated death and was risen. And we need to ask the question, well, how big of a deal is that to us? Not just whether we believe the resurrection, but do you have any hope at all placed in the fact that your body will be united with your spirit when Jesus makes it rise from the grave? You're not going to be an ethereal spirit forever and ever, you will have a resurrected body. And the only reason that we hope that is because Jesus did. That's how important that this is. Some of the Corinthians, again, were obviously struggling with the reality of and the vital importance of this doctrine of Christ's bodily resurrection. Paul teaches in this chapter, bluntly, that to deny the bodily resurrection of Jesus is essentially the same thing as denying the Christian faith. Unless Christians are raised from the dead on the day of resurrection, just as Jesus was raised from the dead on the first Easter, Paul writes in verse 19, again, this next paragraph that is really something, Christians are to be pitied more than all men. If Jesus Christ is not bodily raised from the dead, then Christ's death does not pay for our sins. And our faith is vain or futile. This also means that we are false witnesses about Christ because we've been telling everyone that God raised him from the dead. Tim Keller sums this up by saying something very Tim Keller-ish. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. 
If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about what he said? That's how stark this contrast is. So Paul proceeds here in our text to list six episodes when Christ appeared to people after he rose from the dead. Now remember, this list of people who actually saw with their own eyes the risen Christ in a body is especially important for the Corinthians to hear. You see why? Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection was verified by his numerous appearances that we read about here in verses 5 through 9. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. We had a question this morning about the ascension. Paul saw the ascended Christ. First, Cephas. Who's that? Kids? Who is Cephas? Peter, the apostles and others said, The Lord has risen indeed and appeared to Simon. Simon Peter in Luke 24, 34. This is in other places in the New Testament. And then we read in one place in Mark 16 how Jesus forgave and reinstated Peter in Galilee because Peter had denied him right before he was crucified. Jesus didn't appear as an ethereal spirit on the Sea of Galilee, on that little beach, whatever it was. He was in his resurrection body. He ate with him, spoke to him. Then we read the twelve. Now, this is used as a collective term in the four Gospels for the disciples, especially on Easter. And then we read to more than 500 brothers at one time. Now, what's the point of Paul saying this? The point here is the large number of people who could testify to the resurrection. Remember, these people weren't scattered over a huge area. These people were all confined to a little bitty country of Israel which you can walk across. That makes a difference. Jewish law, in Jewish law, the presence of two or three witnesses was mandatory to prove the veracity of an event you're testifying about. By appearing to more than 500 people at one time, this proof is literally overwhelming. Paul adds that most of them were still alive at the time he wrote this, implying that anybody who doubted this could just go around and talk to these people and ask them to give their testimony. He also says that some have fallen asleep, which meant they had referred, they had died. I remember in college that this was a huge point 
college being the first part of the 70s, where it seemed like at least a quarter of the campus was on something. It was very interesting how the, so many people that were using or on something viewed this particular claim of Christ. At first, it was silly. They had hallucinations like we do. And then somebody asked the question, have you ever heard of anybody in the plural having exactly the same hallucination? Not one would say, yeah, we were in a group and we were all having the same hallucination. It doesn't happen that way. And then what started out as a silly question in an argument turned into a very powerful fact that so many had to address and it got their attention. Many came to the Lord, maybe with that first question right there. This testimony appeared to 500 people. Next to James. Which James is this? This is James, Jesus' brother. And we know that his half-brother, his brothers, were not believers until after <clears throat> the resurrection or the ascension. And James was one of those. He actually became the leader in the Jerusalem church. I've always wondered whether it was just, hey, James, or whether there was a lot more to that. To all the apostles, next. This is synonymous with the 12, but referring here to Jesus' ascension. And then lastly, what does Paul say? He appeared to me. Paul refers to himself saying, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles and worthy to be called apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So Paul's conversion experience happened years after Jesus' ascension on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians. Back in verse 9, I mean verse 1 of chapter 9, Paul wrote, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? In John's gospel, there's an account of Jesus cleansing the temple. This extremely upset the Jews, of course, and they asked Jesus a particular question. In John 2, verse 22, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Cleansing the temple. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews, being a little slow, like most of us, said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. And he mainly say, said it for his disciples to hear. Because the next verse says, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered 
that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. That's when all the dots were connected. Amazing verse. And Paul was the last appointed apostle of Christ. Even though he knew he had been a serious and dangerous persecutor of Christ's church, what does Paul know? He knows God's grace. How could he not? How could any of us not if we're truly, truly knowing ourselves and our condition? And that's his theme here at the end of this particular paragraph, which I think is absolutely remarkable. But it fits so well because he points us in the right direction. He writes, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. I think it would be very interesting sometime to take an anonymous poll in our church and ask, when was it in your life that you first said that about yourself? Do you see why? It would say a whole lot about what your attitude was toward what Christ has done for you, whether you recognize that he did what you couldn't do for yourself, whether you recognized your condition was so lost that only God could save you. Do you see what I'm getting at here? I think it'd be really interesting. So I'm going to forget this at some point, as you all know. So help me remember. We need to just do that for fun sometime and see anonymously what part of people's lives that you said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me, Paul writes, was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He's not bragging about his own exploits. He's saying that everything that God has done, which by writing this letter, he was already a couple of missionary trips, all sorts of disasters and calamities persecutions, beatings. And he's saying what? He's saying the reality is that God gave me a chance to deliver the gospel sometimes in the most dangerous circumstances on the face of the earth. And it was by God's grace he counted it a privilege and a blessing. And that's what God does when he changes our hearts. And you see that in verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach. And so you believed. What does that tell the Corinthians when he says that at the end? He is not giving up on them. He is trusting God to change hearts. But he knows God is using him and the, and the proclamation of the gospel and how it applies to life to get their attention. Whether he overcame this, helped them overcome, overcome this Greek idea about death and the afterlife, we don't know how that played out for sure. But folks, as I said, we've got the same issue 
in the land in which we live. If we ourselves are not, part of our hope is not a bodily resurrection when our bodies and our souls are joined back together. Because that's what death is. It's when those two are ripped apart. That's why it's so traumatic. But we have that hope. You're not going to recognize a spirit by a flashing sign on somebody's forehead because you can't recognize them. You're going to recognize them because you recognize them. And it's almost too glorious to even think about, but that's what he wants us to think about in hope. That's part of the hope we have. So what motivated Paul? What moved his heart to preach and care for others and live for his Savior? This is a basic question. I bet most of our kids can answer this question. But man, do we forget this fast the more we grow up. What motivates us? The grace of God that was with him and in him through Christ who saved him. And we never graduate from that. We only grow in the knowledge and how it's applied. Praise God. We know his grace. We have a lot of questions that came up last week. Do we not? And as one very astute non-Christian wrote in an article I read last week, the only reason America became aware of it and actually wanted to do something about it was because all the sports got canceled. Do you realize how true that is? The gods of America are now quiet. We're not denigrating the athletes. We're just saying we've made gods out of sports. And so when they all canceled, people just went to Sam's. They had nothing else to do. (laughs) Makes you think a little bit, doesn't not? We have the grace of Christ. He hasn't gone anywhere. He holds us in his hand. He has a purpose for us during this time. It's not about me. It's not about you individually. It's about us. So let's do this right. So we can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Today, tomorrow, next week, next month, everything's up in the air. Another missionary friend of mine uh, sent a letter out, and he said this. Um, He was traveling, trying to get back from Costa Rica. Um, Teaches in colleges all over the earth about creation things. And he said, we we didn't know we were going to come back. We don't know what's going on. My mother is in this situation. Sounds like a lot of us have been talking. And he said, uh, well... All we, what we found out is that we're not really in control of anything. Have you, have you said that yet? Which means it's a good thing to know that our God is sovereign. This is when the rubber meets the road. So let's turn to him and do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the grace that you've given us in Christ Jesus, our Lord.
We thank you for the different gifts you've given us, for the different callings you've given us, and for being able to gather this day to honor and glorify and worship you. We thank you that you have gotten our attention once again in a different way, that we belong to you, that we can trust you, that we can be used by you to share hope that it seems like everybody else does not have. Oh, God, guard us from living and saying and talking in these times like we don't know what hope is or what truth is or the facts that we say that we believe. Do we believe we are really held in your hand? Do we believe that you know us, that you keep us, that you have the best for us, that we have eternity to look forward to. Bring all these things, make them new in our hearts and our minds so that we can love you and serve you and love one another. And use us wherever we are in this community, wherever, to also be the ones that haven't lost their head, that aren't panicking, that are being accountable, that are doing excellent work, but are caring about the things that are of primary importance, and we ask that all in Christ's name. Amen.